Mitch Hampton, and this is the podcast Journey of an Aesthete, of course. And that's the theme song for Book Lunch. Um, I'm going to um, talk a little bit now about this book and about many other things. First, let me show you the book. Um, White Noise um, by Don DeLillo. Um, I put Panasonic in the title because originally Don DeLillo wanted to title his novel Panasonic. Um, but the, the Panasonic Corporation um, was opposed to him doing that. So he settled on white noise, which is the kind of the, the ambient sound, the noise. Um, um, it refers to that, that um, sonic uh, audit, auditory um, shh, whatever that is. Any, any of that. Um, this is the first novel I've done for the book launch, and I'm going to proceed rather differently than other book discussions, especially in fiction, in that I'm not going to give you really the plot of the novel. I'm not going to um, tell you, you know, it, it's not so the reasons are interesting. So it's not so much because... Um, I want there to be suspense as to outcomes um, in terms of narrative, but it's actually that I want to de-emphasize, you know, um, that aspect of the novel um, and sort of get into the, the uh, more um, stylistic things. So I, um, this is from 1985, this novel. And as I said, have said in the past before, it's going to be a movie by Noah Baumbach with Greta Gerwig and, Adam Driver is the, I think the main character and uh, Don Cheadle and all those folks. And um, he's an interesting sort of, mm, wouldn't be my first guest to direct a film of a DeLillo novel. Uh, David Cronenberg did uh, Don DeLillo's Cosmopolis in the middle of with, with Robert Pattinson, I think. And that was, a, that was actually a really, that's interesting case of a, of a film that is totally um, allied with the spirit of that particular novel to a very, uh, you know, faithfulness and integrity. And actually, that's actually, I don't think that common. So looking at the ad for White Noise, I really love the visual sense. It's, a, it's They're going for kind of a Stranger Things kind of 80s uh, visual spectacle or spectacular style, you know. And so visually, I, I, I'm very, I respond to that very well, but I can't comment on anything else. And we're going to dig into this novel and dig into Don, Don DeLittle. So I want to get into some personal storytelling. How did I discover this book? You know, what, what, uh, what brought me to this novel? So I read this novel in the 80s when it came out, and I read it with a friend of mine named Jack Wright. And Jack Wright and I played in the band at that time. And he's uh, now he um, has a job doing running concerts in the city of Boston um, and promoting concerts, producing concerts. Anyhow, in the 80s, he said, Mitch, you got to check out this book, White Noise. Now, I was not really that familiar with DeLillo at that time. I hadn't read Ratner's, oh, oh, I forget the last name of that word, but it was early work. Um, but I was really 
blown away by this novel. And I sort of, one of the reasons I chose this novel is that it's about the world we live in, in terms of the stuff of the world, the environment, the detritus, the necessities, the design. Um, but it's not about those things. And this is this, I'm gonna hold up Don DeLillo very highly. Don DeLillo, and I'm not gonna be coy about this, is one of the best living writers, full stop. Better than many other writers that one might prefer or might be more popular. Um, he's, um, and we'll get into, you know, why I think he's so great in a bit. But what part of it is that when he writes a book about a Midwestern academic family, so it's about Jack Gladney teaches at a, at a university, um, his wife, Babette, and then their, and then their, their kids, uh, in the eighties and he's, he's in a way having fun with academic trends of the eighties and sort of some of the, a little bit of, I say a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of the vanity and silliness of it a little bit. So for example, the main character teaches Hitler studies and that was very starting to become big is using the word studies. This was the very beginning of that, actually. Um, that's the thing about Don DeLillo is he writes about things not only that are happening, but that will continue to be important or increase in importance. And uh, Jack Gladney sort of has an antagonist of the novel, a fellow professor who wants to develop Elvis studies. And so they talk about Hitler and Elvis as figures. And so there's a kind of a, a little bit of humor in the novel. It's a little bit, I guess, functions as a little bit of social satire. But, and this is a big but, um, the novel depicts these people with, I would, I would say, ultimately, um, concern, care, understanding. And it's not only like, ha ha, these people silly. After all, I, Mitch Hampton, almost had a life like these people. I came very, very close to um, choosing for myself an academic life. So clearly I don't think that's a, uh, something that's unworthy of doing. And, and, um, and in fact, there doesn't, there's not a day that goes by where I don't, regret's too strong a word, but I often think, you know, well, you know, maybe I should have done this. And so clearly I, you know, uh, uh, find the intellectual values of the characters they talk about it we'll get to that because they talk about intellectual things in the dialogue which is fantastic it's very rare in novels not only because of who the figures are in the novel that they happen to be not as educated to speak in this way intellectual way but it's just rare anyhow to have characters talking about movies and books and all throughout white noise characters are talking about film noir and they're talking about oh all sorts of things and also there's a there's a there's a theme in this novel that hovers over the novel and that's the fear of death and that characters are not only explicit about their fear of death they talk about death but there's actually one of some of the characters become addicted to a like a pharmaceutical drug a fictional drug called dilar whose um point is actually to get rid of one's fear of death which is a very again a novelist like um don delillo can invent dystopian world, sort of alternate worlds, even though he's writing in reality, it's in the 80s, it's not some alternate uh, alternate universe, or alternate United States. It's very much rooted in, you know, 
you know, the United States of the 80s, still um, he's uh, doing some very unusual things like that choice of a drug or um, uh, a big event in the novel is something called the Toxic Airborne Event. And there's some capital letters in the novel. It's like there's this event that's toxic and airborne. Um, and it sort of causes, you know, social catastrophe, obviously. And so he's writing this in 84, I'm guessing, and this is long before a pandemic, but there's some similarities because there's, there's a spill of some kind of toxin and then everybody's panicking. And so that occurs. And um, another, again, another case of, so there's, it's actually, it's interesting, Don DeLillo, um, in his novel, I guess the thing I love, two things I get back to what I love about him, why I, I extol him higher than some other folks. And there's a few handful of writers that I think I won't list. Uh, I won't give you a list of names of writers I, I hold really highly because it, you know, I could, but I just want to stick to Delillo. Is that he writes about things that normally by an other author would be treated in a very tendentious way. In other words, there would be a clear case of you know villains and heroes, and there would be a sense of you know some kind of very clear moral lesson. And although this novel is unafraid of discussing very big issues and uh, things happen in the novel that are significant, there's a sense, again, that compassion, there's a sense of he's relating these fictional characters in ways that you could sort of understand where they're coming from. And um, that's actually highly unusual. Um, again, novelists, especially science fiction novelists, which he's not, but, you know, state of the world type of novel, especially today, streaming television. Most streaming television shows about current events uh, have this kind of, I would say, tendentious quality. They have a score to settle or they're, um, they're against academia or for academia or they're for revolution or they're against capitalism. No, in white noise, Don DeLillo is interested in things in, I would say, an aesthetic way, actually. He's interested in them not as something to oppose or support, but just to experience, understand, and maybe kind of figure out where we are all going in the sense that there were, we're all kind of lost souls trying to figure things out. And that's sort of the underlying thing, even in this novel. Look at all these post-it notes. I got all these um, post-its. And I don't know if we can get to all these quotes uh, in the novel. I like to get to a lot of them because the, the, the thing about fiction, well, the thing about nonfiction too, about all prose is the style, is the syntax, um, uh, the sentences and the feeling those, um, those bring the reader. And the way that the characters of this novel as Unreal or real, although they may be, they cause something in you as a reader, if you're reading the novel, to experience that. Now, in 2008, <clears throat> I took a, I took a um, literature class um, with uh, James Wood, and it was at Harvard University. I took a whole semester there I, uh, for... for uh, auditing, audit this class. And he had written a book called How Fiction Works. And in that class, we read V.S. Naipaul and I think some Henry Green, 
a couple of Chekhov short stories. I don't really, again, it's fuzzy. I remember the Neopold, the house for Mr. Biswas, I think was the novel. And James Wood had made a name for himself as a defender of um, what fiction should do, like the proper goals of fiction, almost, almost a little bit like uh, F.R. Levis and Queenie Levis. They were a husband and wife in the 50s and 40s who were very adamant about what fiction should do. And so, you know, I went into this class and I was taking, studying V.S. Nop. I really, one of the things I liked about James Wood, he's, 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 in, he's British, right? So he would come in, he would take out a text, he would say, let's look at a little bit of aesthetic detail. It's the first thing we would do when we read a sentence. And so that's kind of a little bit like close reading. That part of James Wood I was crazy about. The part I was not crazy about that connects to this novel is he was on record as condemning a whole bunch of novelists for not doing fiction the right way, which in his term was, I guess, unreal or fantastic, or he called it hysterical fiction. And I think he was very hard on Zadie Smith, who wrote White Teeth, speaking of one, another very interesting novel. And he was sort of, and Thomas Pynchon, so I guess he was kind of hard on all the um, wild experimentalists of fiction, trying to do something different, trying to, to portray the world in its craziness and its chaotic messiness and not doing it with the proper fidelity to, I guess, James Wood's very, I think it's English sense of, you know, is this character believe, believable and what is the moral of the story and all that. I totally reject all of that of Wood. And I actually... You know, Don DeLittle is very prolific. He's written Underground, Americana, Falling Man about 9-11. He's written about genetic engineering. I mean, he's written about all these things. And uh, I think we should listen to Don DeLittle speak. I found a clip of him from 1997. And when he, he's talking about his own life and he's talking about the aesthetics of language. And it's really very interesting. He, um, he and then again, the, the context here, of course, is... He's just published his great big novel, Underworld, which was a really, really major novel in the 90s. It's actually of DeLillo's work. It's the one that's the most cited. It's the one that many critics consider his most important, even, even though he's done many things good since. I did not choose that novel. Again, it's a personal storytelling thing. It was white noise that appealed to me. Me and Jack would say, well, what do you think about these Midwestern teachers, you know, at this fictional Midwestern university? in Hitler studies, you know. And so I, want, I thought I would uh, play a clip of him speaking about his discovery of the Greek language. It's really beautiful. And, American voice. And the way he... Um, can you hear it? He, um, he, he actually... He speaks as he writes. It's great. Hope you can hear this. Sorry, it's not video, it's only audio. I lived in uh, Greece for a time. This was in the late 1970s and early 1980s. I was working on a book set in that part of the world. And in letters to friends, I liked to refer to Athens, a little ironically, as the ancient world. Nitric acid falling from the sky angry traffic choking much of the city. 
sometimes on a quiet winter afternoon at the end of a long, aimless walk, <clears throat> I'd find myself standing on the Acropolis. Um, between the gateway, as many of you know, between the gateway to the Acropolis and the, um, and the temple structures, you can find slabs of marble just lying about haphazardly. I was um, just learning the alphabet at the time, the Greek alphabet, learning it like a child, only slower. But I like to study the writing on the inscribed stones. And even if I couldn't um, translate what was written on the stones at that point, I could study the letters themselves, the letter shapes in particular. It was a kind of visual art. The Greeks, in fact, made an art of the alphabet, a visual art. Years later, I began to understand that there's an odd connection between the routine days I spend at my typewriter and those deep afternoons on the Acropolis when I was surrounded by words fixed for centuries in marble. I use an old manual typewriter, an Olympia as it happens. And I find it interesting that the mechanics involved in tapping out a line contain a certain sensuousness, fingers hitting the keys, hammers striking the page, there's a firmness of sound and touch. And there are leather shapes that engrave themselves onto the white surface. There's a sculptural quality to this and a sense of visual correspondence, the way certain words in a sentence seem to match each other pictorially, the way letters in a given word seem to strike a kind of balance or create a kind of symmetry. I began to detect a meaning outside the limits of strict content. Near the end of Underworld, the last page in fact, there's a very long sentence and near the end of this sentence, there's a certain phrase, the raw sprawl of the city. It's not simply that the words raw and sprawl look somewhat alike and sound somewhat alike. It's that the word raw is contained in the word sprawl, like a baby kangaroo nesting in its mother's pouch. There's an affinity, a blood relation that joins these words in ways outside their definitions, something that pleases the eye, a sense of alphabet art, Now that's Don DeLillo talking about how he sees the world, not just his own writing. The raw sprawl of the city. So he's taken a phrase out of his own damn novel that he's just written. And so I'm gonna read passages from White Noise. And again, these characters are flawed characters and you might not like the fact that they're teaching Elvis studies or want to. I mean, I'm a musician, so I think all music should be taught. I mean. I mean, uh, you know, 
why not? I mean, why not study the meanings or the hidden meanings of Elvis's iconic status from the South or, or, or country or rock? I, I say we should, I mean, again, there's only so many hours in the day, you can't do everything. But I, I'm certainly, again, here at Journeyman Sleep Podcast, we're open to uh, pluralism. And so there's a, you know, surely a, as much of a place for Elvis as teaching teaching about the, the evils of the Holocaust and Hitler. Both. So any event, um, um, I don't know where to, where to start. Oh, here we go. This is when we first meet um, Jack Gladney and his antagonist, Murray. And Murray's kind of, I don't want to say too much about him. Um, well, here we go. And uh, it says, Murray was new to the hill, a stoop-shouldered man with little round glasses and an Amish beard. He was a visiting lecturer on living icons and seemed embarrassed by what he gleaned so far from his colleagues in popular culture. I understand the music. I understand the movies. I even uh, see how comic books can tell us things. But there are fall professors in this place who read nothing but cereal boxes. It's, hey, it's the only avant-garde we've got. Not that I'm complaining, mind you, you know, I like, uh, I like it here, you know, I, I'm totally enamored of this place, a small town setting. I want to, want to be free of cities and sexual entanglements, heat. This is what cities mean to me. You get off the train, you walk out of the station, and you're hit with a full blast. The heat of air and traffic and people, and the heat of food and sex, and the heat of the tall buildings the heat that floats out of the subways and the tunnels. It's always 15 degrees hotter in the cities. Heat rises from the sidewalks and falls from the poison sky. The buses breathe heat. Heat emanates from crowds of shoppers and office workers. The entire infrastructure is based on heat, desperately uses up heat, breeds more heat. The eventual heat death of the universe that scientists love to talk about, it's already here, well underway, and you can feel it happening all around you in any large or medium-sized city, heat and wetness. Uh, Mary, where are you living? In a rooming house. It's totally captivated and intrigued. So it's a conversation between me. Now, this is what Don DeLillo does. In the mouth of Mary are things that the reader might have sympathy with. Like, let's say... Again, I really hate that, everything he says, because I love cities. And all the things he's attacking are things I would gladly experience in an hour if I could, but I can't. And yet for him, these are all very negative things. So it's interesting. And it's, you know, we'll get to Mary. We'll talk a little bit more about Mary. But in the mouth of a character, he has all these things. But yet if you're another kind of a reader, you know, say who loves nature and has an idea that the city is, 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 is negative, you're going to be right on, Mary. He, he's on to something. And yet, Mary is a very dubious character in this novel. And he's, uh, well, again, I'm not going to reveal the plot. Um, later on in the novel, uh, Mary uh, has one of his many crackpot theories. Um, he has many crackpot theories. Of course, this thing about cities, even though it's partly true, because cities have a problem with too much heat, and there's an environmental crisis then and now. Um, so I, it, it needs to be said, right? And this is where, you know, it's like having the, 
what is the thing in, in fiction where you give the, the the antagonist or you give the devil some some good ideas and bad ideas and etc. Not that he's. I'm not going to say whether he's. I'm not going to say. There's actually a long debate over how to understand Mary among critics in this novel. He says he's talking to Jack. He says, "I believe Jack. There are two kinds of people in the world: killers and dyers. Most of us are dyers. We don't have the disposition, the rage, or whatever it takes to be a killer." We let death happen. We lie down and die. But think what it's like to be a killer. Think how exciting it is in theory to kill a person in direct confrontation. If he dies, you cannot. To kill him is to gain life credit. The more people you kill, the more credit you store up. It explains any number of massacres, wars, executions. And so Jack, Jack Clay responds, he goes, he says, are you saying that men have tried throughout history to cure themselves of death by killing others? It's obvious. Now, there's a lot of passages in the novel where the characters say things like this, and you have to read it. Um, and sort of the reader has work to do. So um, I'm going to go on the record. I'm going to say this, okay? I'm actually kind of angry at the fact that most novels actually don't really have exchanges like that with their characters. In other words, they may be otherwise really wonderful novels and they may do many things, but they don't. It's, it's really odd because um, he's not considered a dialogue writer. I mean, when people talk about DeLillo, it's, it's not really necessarily for his dialogue. Um, but, you know, the people in this book talk about philosophic things and talk about life and death and the passage there. And even if it's horrific, even if we think it's, well, that's unethical or that's um, beyond the pale, he has them say it. You know, and, and you kind of you kind of have to have to deal with that. And um, there's passages in supermarkets. Uh, they run into a commune of nuns uh, who who are kind of an alternative, strange form of Christianity, even though they're nuns. There's a, I mean, there's a kind of this kind of um, I guess fantastic slash fanciful sort of wacky, unreal aspect of the reality. It's like, you know, there's, there's, there's um, parody of, um, of bureaucraties and, and, and there's, uh, you know, all that. Okay, so there's this toxic airborne event and they're in their car trying to flee, the, flee wherever they are and everything's chaos. And then there's an official announcement. And th this is the person announcing... I want to welcome all of you on behalf of Advanced Disaster Management, a private consulting firm that conceives and operates simulated evacuations. We are interfacing with 22 state bodies in carrying out this advanced disaster drill. The first, I insist of many, the more we rehearse disaster, the safer we'll be from the real thing. Life seems to work that way, doesn't it? Now, what's interesting is that this is like a drill but there's actually a disaster happening. And it sort of confuses the characters in the novel. They're saying, well, there is a disaster. So why do you keep saying this is a drill and there isn't a, and it's, is there a disaster? Isn't there? Don DeLillo's, Don DeLillo is portraying our world to us. He's portraying our world in 2022, in 1984. This, this novel is the opposite of dated. It's, it's, I mean, this, is, this, is, this is the world we're in. And I, you know, I really do think, I really give, I uh, think that writers, 
playwrights when they when they get something of who we are and what's going on. Uh, that's you know that's commendable. But on top of that is the beauty of his prose, you know. And there's the, the just the um, I don't know uh, what else to say. If you haven't read White Noise, read it. If you if you want to go ahead and read Underworld or Falling Man, those are good too. This is the novel I picked. Um, it's interesting reading a novel, rereading a novel that you read when you were just out of teenagehood or adolescence. You know, what I was 18. I'm 55 now. I reread it and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I just don't know. I mean, uh, I think it's I think it's really something, you know, and I think that um, that someone can do that in prose. Someone can sort of take the world and take abstractions of the world. But avoid the trap of this kind of what I think call is the tendentiousness, this sort of gothic mode. And the gothic mode is sort of this, um, you know, kind of good versus evil, high stakes thing. This novel could have easily been like some of those science fiction novels where there's a villain, like this, this, this corporation that makes an announcement. They're not really a, they're not a villain. I mean, they're sort of, in other words, they're not like sort of, it's not like the Matrix where, it's the it's the opposite of the matrix. It's a world where thing you know there are things that are wrong and things that are that are that are there are things that are wrong. There are things that are right, but it's not clear that it's about sides of the fence. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's an attitude towards life that Don DeLillo has that's completely contrary to what we're all experiencing now, or what we bring into existence by virtue of our belief in what side are you on, you know? And it's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't really want to get polit too political, but you know, I live in North Carolina and it's, um, you know, not every state, you know, I see these, I see these, <laughs> these reports about, well, things are okay now. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you elect a, if you elect a Senate, well, again, I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's as many reasons to be unhappy or despair as there are, as there are for hope, I'm just saying. And so, uh, you know, and it's all in this novel, White Noise. And it's uh, 1230, that's 30 minutes. I thought I was going to talk for an hour, but I feel that that's all I have. Um, and so thank you. And I hope you get something out of this. And again, I tried to, I'm going to try to do book reviews of novels. And when I do them, not sort of tell you what's going to happen necessarily, just give you kind of a a feeling of the novel, you know, a kind of a, and um, leave it at that. And maybe it'll inspire discussion. All right, thank you and have a good rest of the week.